forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. It is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and their officials. When I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We are, or we, as far as we are able, have brought back Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, uh, our enemies? Moreover, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. The percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil you have been exacting from them. And they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from this house, from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 22nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even and their servants lorded it over the people, but it, I, I did not do, do so because of the fear of God. And also preserved in the work or persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were... At my table, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance for the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. And remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we've got a chance to look at your word. Uh, I pray that when we take this moment, that what I speak would be in accordance with what is true, or they would glorify you. And also, we all would benefit, Lord, from taking a note out of Nehemiah's book on how to lead, how to stay focused on you. Father, make, make us wiser Father, give us strength to keep pursuing you. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Now, as I was reading that, um, hopefully y'all are catching the drift of the story. Some of you may have been wondering when I was going to finally stop reading. We've got 19 verses to cover this morning. And so I hope you're ready to go along with me. Now, you may notice it, one of the, part of this passage, verse 13, and all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they have promised. I was going to ask to see if I could get some amens out of y'all this morning. We'll see if we can garner that a little bit, but we'll see how that goes. So if you're joining us and you haven't been with us for a minute, perhaps, maybe saying, what's going on here in Nehemiah 5? Where are we? What's the story? We need to zoom out real quick and then zoom back in and kind of pick up where we are, what's going on in this passage. 
What's going on in this passage in particular, there's some friendly fire. We've had some, some opposition from the outside, and now there's opposition on the inside, and Nehemiah's got to figure out how to settle this. And he does, and he does so with wisdom, and he does so giving glory to God. But before he got here, they had already done some work on the wall, right? Remember that opposition to the work was in chapter 4. We'll just kind of keep going backwards. You've got Sanballat and his buddy Tobiah that just did not want anything good happening with what these Jewish people were doing. And so they jeered at them, the Bible says. But before there was opposition to the work, there was actually work going on. In Nehemiah chapter 3, it's a big list of all the people, different groups, that is, and working on this wall, rebuilding this wall. Several different gates, so several different sections, and several different kinds of people. So what we find is that in the midst of diversity, there was unity in a single mission, and they were chasing that and giving glory to God. If you back up a little more, you get back to the reason why this is happening in the first place. Nehemiah chapter 2, he arrives at this city, Jerusalem, and he assesses the walls that are in disrepair. Before he even went to Jerusalem to assess what was going on, he was brokenhearted about the state of Jerusalem. And so this is the story of Nehemiah so far. As soon as he heard in chapter 1 of what was going on and from his brothers, uh, verse 3, chapter 1, they said, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So it all started with a man that was brokenhearted for the glory of God, for his city. And now we end up, we've seen some things, how he has led well. He is a example of a pastor leader of sorts. He wasn't a priest, though. He wasn't anything necessarily of that regard. He was just a man serving the Lord. He was a cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. And then he finds himself in chapter 5, we see he's been appointed governor. He was appointed before, but he's the governor of Judah here. That surely made some people angry. So what's going on then? If that's the context, what's going on here? What are we chasing? What's the point of this? We bring up back up the topic of friendly fire. Now, if you're in war, friendly fire is a terrible thing, right? The fire should be going towards the enemy, not those that are your friends. And when that happens, that's a terrible thing. You cannot fight efficiently. Well, that's what was going on here. And that's what Nehemiah sought to take care of. And so when God's people do God's work God's way, what we see is that they will encounter opposition. There's going to be resistance to this no matter what. If you look at the church compared to the world, there's resistance to what we hold, right? What the Bible says. And it ought to be as clear as day. So the question is, then how do we deal with problems on the inside when we're building to God's glory? Because there will be problems on the inside too. Here's what we can get from Nehemiah. His fear, Nehemiah's fear of God allowed for him exercising a passion on the people under his charge. What you notice here in the midst of opposition, Nehemiah, who he was and who God had made him to be and what he had, was gifting him with kind of came out to be seen. 
He was a compassionate leader, but he wasn't just a compassionate leader. He was a leader with a backbone. And what we see here in this chapter is that those things go together. And that is what we want to exhibit as well. So I've got three points for you this morning, like every good Baptist sermon. We'll see. Hopefully they help you. They help me as we look at this. And the first one is this. It's a bit longer than normal, so I'll see if y'all can, can hang on for a minute. The first thing we see in the first five verses is the breaking of the camel's back. That's the first thing, the breaking of the camel's back. There had to come a point in this story when Nehemiah finally realized what was going on and said, we got to do something about this. And what this was was an internal conflict with God's people. So there's three cries for help coming from God's people here. And notice them in the first five verses. You've got the first cry of help. And now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Verse 2, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. Right? Chapter 3, there's a lot of folks working on this wall. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now, here we have a simple, simple, simple need. Nehemiah had commissioned these people to work hard as they should and as they desired to do for this mission. But it got to a point where those back, the families were saying, Nehemiah, that there's, there's groaning going on. We got to keep eating in order to stay alive to keep doing this work. Now, it wasn't an outcry of, of anger against Nehemiah here in particular. It was simply, look, we need some help. There's some stuff going on. But it gets a little more serious. See, that was the first outcry. There was no food. Let's see what he says next. And so they said, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And then there were also those who said, this is another group. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So still a food issue. This is a different group of people trying to handle it in a different way. What these people were under was a debilitating debt. They were having to mortgage things out just to get money, to get food. In verse 4, and there were those who said, Another group, we have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. Our other men have our fields and our vineyards. So they were in a terrible situation. So you've got, first off, people that just simply have no food. Second off, people that are under debilitating debt. And then third, cry for help. People that are un, under unbearable taxes and still have no food as well. And so what was going on is, in the midst of hardship, the people were crying out, against abuse going on. If you notice the second two, at least, the debilitating debt and the unbearable taxes that led these people to put their even their children in, into slavery, that service for a period of time, that was because there were their brothers that were holding it over them. Say, so if you just do this, give this to us, we'll give you what you need in order to buy food. And so you have infighting going on. Those of power, abusing that power, and pushing down the people that were working hard here. And so you've got what broke the camel's back in the first five, five verses. And so the first thing we want to do is simply to take note of what's going on. This is what's going on. But the application is going to come as 
Nehemiah handles this. And so this is what we see next. After this great outcry arose, and you see these, these three cries for help, what happens? Then you get to see, number two, the mending leadership step in. This was Nehemiah's wise response. We'll spend a little more time here. So you notice and what happens in verse 6. What did he do? How did he respond? He said, he was very angry when I heard their outcry, these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are for exacting interest, each from his own brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. First thing I want you to notice, there's there's at least three things we can garner or get from Nehemiah here. First thing I want us to notice is this, is that he heard their grievance. It's very easy when you hear people in the midst of work sometimes, we all know how, know how this goes. There's those that like to complain. Why? Because they might not like to work very hard. Right Now, none of us in this room would say that that's us, would we? No, we're all really hard workers, amen? All in agreement there. Right, but that's not exactly the situation going on here. These people were in serious trouble. Right, we, we live in a day and time, and praise the Lord for it. You can, you can call it the, the Pax Americana, right? The the that American peace that has lasted for so very long. Most of us live in relatively good conditions, and praise the Lord for that. Here these people were wondering when they were going to get grain just in order to live through the next week, provide for their kids. They had people that were squeezing every last bit of profit out of them that they possibly could. And the king was one of them because the king, uh, Artaxerxes, and the Persian taxes were very high. Uh, when they would take in nations, they would say, you know what, you can worship who you want to worship. You can even keep staying among your own people, but you have to give us a lot of money. And so they were under this as well. And so Nehemiah could have stood back and said, you know what, just keep working. I hear you, but just keep working. I don't think it's that big of a deal. That's not what he did. He heard their grievance. And we ought to take that into account as well in terms of what a good leader looks like. But in hearing the grievance, it's interesting how he responded. He responded in anger and frustration, it says here. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, when we read that, we probably go, well, as you should be, Nehemiah, that's, that's messed up. There's some bad stuff going on. But the hard part gets to this. is Say, okay, if that's what Nehemiah's doing, then how do I settle that with how I live? Can I read this and say, oh, man, that means I get to get mad at what I don't like and all these things? How should we read this when we see this in the Bible? This is what we have to do when we go verse by verse. What's it actually getting at? What's it giving me liberty to do? What is it not? What do we see in the rest of the scriptures? 
Well, first off, it's not wrong for the Christian to be angry. All right? Uh, yes, you're hearing the preacher say this. It's not wrong for the Christian to be angry. But James does say that the anger of man does not make for the righteousness of God. So just because we're frustrated does not mean necessarily that it's over the what we ought to be frustrated over. What we have to do is assess what frustrates us, what causes this anger. Because what you'll notice here is there are some qualifications, some stipulations to what Nehemiah is concerned for. What you also notice is that throughout the entirety of God's Word, where there is what we can call this righteous anger that we so very rarely, rarely, and I speak for myself, most definitely have, if ever. There's some qualifications to this. And so his anger is in response, first off, to an offense to God's glory. Second off, to a denial of God's Word. And third, to the harm of God's people. So more often, we are angry in response to an offense to ourselves, aren't we? Well, they did this to me, so that means, God, go get them, right? Just give me liberty to, to, to do what I want to do because I am frustrated over how I've been treated. If you notice here in verse 6, there's no concern Nehemiah has for how he's just been treated. And he's been treated pretty bad already. Remember back in chapter 4? Verse 1, And when Sanballat heard we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Now notice the difference. And this is what's great about the storytellers of the Bible. All right, they set up these people that look so very different we can glean from. Sanballat was mad. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers, in the army of Samaria. Now notice this. He made sure to get mad in front of everybody else and let them know why he was mad. What did Nehemiah do after he was frustrated over the things going on? I was angry when I heard their, their outcry in these words. I took counsel within myself. Isn't that amazing? That's not normally what we do, is it? I'm mad. I'm going to let everybody know it. Right? And all God's people said, see, this is really practical stuff, isn't it? It's not complicated. And Nehemiah is an amazing example, and it actually points to Jesus. These, these same three stipulations, offense to God's glory, denial of God's word, harm to God's people. If you remember when Jesus turned the tables over, right? And he had the whip, too. He had to sit down to make it. You realize that? He didn't just go pick it up off the floor. It took a slow contemplation on what he was doing, considering. Now, not in a narcissistic way. Please don't misunderstand me. That's not what I'm getting at. But this frustration for God's glory is something we have to be very particular about and notice. So it's an offense to God's glory. His anger is um, in response to an offense to God's glory. It's also in response to denial of God's word. You notice, I believe it's, I believe it's in Deuteronomy 14. I can't quite recall the verse, but there's a stipulation in the law of God that says you ought not allow for slaves or sell yourselves 
basically to one another as slaves, right? Slaves among yourselves. Now, this wasn't chattel slavery. It wasn't the same thing. It was more of you be my servant for this period of time and then kind of go on. But you notice what was happening in chapter 5, uh, verse 5, the second sentence, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. That shouldn't have been going on. So the second thing concerning his response to anger, or his angry response, it was denial of God's word. He took account that they were not obeying the word of God and said, this is not right. This frustrates me. More often than not, our frustration comes from a denial of what we have said, not a denial of what God has said. The hard thing to do is to assess it in the moment, right? We never want to do that, do we? We want to rise up, get somebody, go after them, do whatever we have to do in order to try to settle it in the moment. Now, if we are really terrible folks, we may be the kind that like to hold grudges. Anybody want to give an amen? And it festers. Instead of taking counsel within ourselves, we let things fester within ourselves. That's not concern for God's glory. That's concern for our own glory. And then harm to God's people. Well, we've listed the harm. He was going, this isn't right. They're hurting. They're starving. They're being squeezed. The Bible also says, be angry and do not sin, the psalmist says. Which begs the question, how do I do that? I want you to notice what he does as he goes, we're going to see the example that we ought to live as we go through the rest of this passage. But that we need to take note of how he initially responds in this anger. And so he heard the grievance. His anger is in response to the offense to God's glory, denial of God's word, and harm to God's people. But what he also did was he had a public discussion after he considered these things. And notice what happens after uh, verse 6. And then after verse 7, he says, In 7, I took counsel with them myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And notice the order of these things. He didn't immediately take, um, bring charges against the nobles and the officials before he took counsel within himself. He took counsel first, assessed the problem, then started to get to work. But he had enough backbone to go directly to the problem. What did he say? He said, I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we are as far as we are able. We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. Again, the slavery thing going on here. And how did they respond when he had this, this public calling out? They were silent and could not find a word to say. Now, I want you to consider this, how this could have gone differently. This could have been like Sandballot, right? Let's keep comparing these two guys. What did Sandballot do when he was mad? This is what he said in verse 2, chapter 4. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Notice how he tacks on these words in order to start just kind of throwing darts at them for no good reason. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? 
where they revived the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that. And Tobiah, his little buddy, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will uh, break down their stone wall. Like, come on, guys, can you not come up with anything better than that? But notice the concern, the difference of concern. And also the difference of action. When Sanballat and Tobiah got mad, they were mad because there was something being done to God's glory, and there's no action that followed their frustration, was there? Rather, no productive action. It simply festered and festered and grew till they finally had a physical assault. When Nehemiah gets frustrated here, there's proper, narrow focus action immediately after he took counsel to solve the problem to God's glory, not to get glory for himself. See, it's not wrong to get angry over things not doing being done to God's glory. Where we mess up is usually right after we have that feeling because we think that we have the feeling for the right purpose. It's usually not the case. But the other problem that generally happens is this. We may very well get frustrated. We may very well know of things that are not being done to God's glory, but we don't have the backbone that Nehemiah has to actually do anything about it. Because the enemy's deceiving, y'all. Oh, you're frustrated. Don't you know that's bad? Right? Parents, let me ask you this. Have you ever been frustrated over your children disobeying? And all God's people said, right? Then what did you end up doing about it after you got frustrated? Well, you did something about it. I'm sure that they could tell you, didn't, didn't you? I mean, I mean it's, it's rather simple, isn't it? And so if, if, if that's the case in that situation, right? Perhaps we need to ask the question why we don't have more of a backbone when it comes to the things of God in this church. You love your children, right? We love God's people, don't we? Nehemiah has compassion on them, actually. So what ends up happening? What, 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 what's going on? Well, his, his anger is followed by careful contemplation. Right, and this is super important, as I've mentioned, but here's why, or at least how it applies to us. He didn't get angry at these guys just because they were different than him. He could have very well said, I'm governor, I get to tell you what to do, so I'm just going to be frustrated with you. And it applies to us this way, because the difference between Nehemiah and those guys, the only difference really between them is... Well, actually, you know what? Guess what? There's not much, is there? It's just grace. And so the temptation often for us is on this side of the church walls. See, it's so balanced, isn't it? Look at all those sinners. We point our fingers on the outside. There was uh, a great issue and a great debate about... uh, drag queen stuff going on in Jackson, right, with the homosexual community and all these things. 
And I'm as opposed to that as the next Christian, as the next preacher. Now, oftentimes what happens is, though, is we get frustrated and forget the only reason we're on this side of the finger pointing is because of grace. Say, preacher, are you saying that we ought to be okay with it? No, 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 no. That's not at all what I'm saying. Don't take it that way. But see, there's this fine, amazing, biblical place to be where you're frustrated with this sin. You even know that the judgment of God is is upon that individual. You're almost angry at the lack of glory being given to God, but you recognize when you begin to actually move into action, the only reason that I'm not there is because of the grace of God. And so when you move into action, it may appear as judgment from certain people, but it's not. Not as Nehemiah moves here. It's actually an act of love. See, this fine line here is so hard to walk. And we've... It's something I pray even now the Lord would reveal more to me because I I don't think it's been talked about very much in the church house over the years. I think we run scared from one side to the other. But see, isn't that how we are in our sinful nature? We want something nailed down, don't we? I want to know what's right, what's wrong. There's a lot of things that are clear like that, but there's a lot of wisdom issues in terms of how we walk every day. You can see, most of the time, when we get to the state that Nehemiah is in, when we get to that public discussion, it's usually followed by reckless confrontation with the wrong people, isn't it? Now, there's so much application of this. It's, it'll, it's, it's eaten me up this week, actually. What do we usually do when we get mad over something that we don't think is right? Yep. We whine, don't we? Y'all say Amen. We love to whine, don't we? We're great at at that. I speak for myself. We tell everybody else how we don't like what's going on, don't we? Then what do we do when we get in the same room? When we have a chance to make a difference? Not in an evil, frustrated way, but to actually make a difference in a situation. What do we often do? Nothing. That happens so, so, so often. We want to know why our culture is the state it's in. It's not because we're not frustrated enough. We've got that, don't we? It's because we don't know how to actually go forward and act and move to the glory of God in the middle of the world that he has made. That's not what Nehemiah did. He's... He said, we're having a meeting, y'all. I'm fixing to tell you what's up. So we need to keep moving. What did he do? What's the, the third thing here in this mending leadership, his wise response? He heard the grievance. He heard or he had a public discussion. And then the last thing is that he held others and himself accountable. And so what was their response? So in the end of verse 8, they were silent and, none, and, and could not find a word to say. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you to not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, uh, our enemies? Moreover, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and again, they are in grain. 
let us abandon this exacting of interest. And notice, he includes himself in this. Now, he wasn't doing the nefarious stuff, but he says, you know what, we need to do away with this entirely, and I'm included. And so what he does is, he, he not only did he hold others accountable, he held himself accountable, which speaks volumes when a leader does such things. A leader who just wags his finger this direction and never takes account of where he actually needs to do better, or she, is not a godly leader. And so he was not afraid to tackle the problem head on, and his wisdom brought the people together on mission. I want you to notice this last thing before we get to, get to the last section here. In verse 11, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. He said, This is what you need to do. And so they said in verse 12, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then he called the priests and made them swear to do as they have promised. And so you may see this next thing and go, what in the world's going on here? I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so, my God shake, so, so may God shake out every man from his house, from his labor, who does not keep the promise. So, he, so may he be shaken out and emptied. This was a customary thing after you instructed people to do is to force them and tell them, and you yourself make an oath that this will be done, and then uh, call upon a curse if you disobey or break that, that oath, right? And so he shook out the fold of his garment and said, this is what should be done to you if you break this. And they were in complete agreement. So instead of signing a contract, you had this. Now notice how they responded after Nehemiah's leadership. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is wonderful. See, what we glean from this is that there is no praise until the people of God say amen and repent. If you want to know why some church houses lack so lack, lack joy and lack celebration of Almighty God and lack enjoyment of Him, it could be for a number of reasons, and one of them may be this, that they fail to follow godly leadership, and they fail to say amen when God calls them to act and repent of their sins. Because the order of this is very important. It's a wonderful thing. Now, how wonderful would it be if we saw this more and more and more among Christians? Assembly saying, Amen, praise the Lord. And the people did as they have promised. Have we done as we have promised? We're called to make disciples according to Matthew 28. And how are we working on it? That's a question for me as well. And some of you, if we get back to who Nehemiah is, he's this leader in the community. Some of you are in positions that God has specifically placed you in that you might serve him. And may this be a reminder of how to go about continuing in that service, lady or gentleman. There will be opposition and there will be internal opposition. And how you handle it will make a difference. And it may lead people to turn away or it may lead people to say amen and praise the Lord. So there's a lesson here in his leadership. But we've got to get to the last thing here. There's another passage from 14 on, and then we'll conclude today. The last thing I want you to notice is that the foundation for a godly response uh, to a hurting people is here. 
So we need to take assessment what goes on. What is Nehemiah's final example that he provides for us? We can see three different things that he gives to us. I want you to take note of what's actually in the passage first. Look at verse 14. Verses 14 to 16 at least. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, so he's their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, uh, the king, 12 years. Now their adorable brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Notice 15 in particular. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them or from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. The first big example that Nehemiah gives us here in this last passage for leadership is that he has a reverence for God. He did not do these things because he just thought it was practical. It says, plain as day, I didn't take advantage of my position because I feared God. Do we expect that of our leaders? We likely do in some regard, but how much do we actually expect that? How much do we expect that of the pastor? Man, how much do you expect that of yourself as a leader of your home? Ladies, how much do you expect that of yourself as you lead your children? Perhaps as you lead your friends? Do you have a reverence for God? But he goes on. After verse 15, 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. Every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. The second thing in regards to leadership that we notice that Nehemiah sets an example for is this. It's compassion for others. There's a lot of folks that get in leadership that have no compassion for their brothers and sisters. Do we? Not only do we, do we expect it? And it's simple compassion, y'all. That's why we had the responsive reading we had earlier. Jesus had compassion. He may have very well went, went into the temple and flipped over tables, but he did not cease to have compassion for those that were around him. And too often what we end up doing is we consider compassion in some regards to be weak and getting frustrated to be strong, and we get those in the wrong places in life. Here, Nehemiah puts them right exactly where they need to be. He's ready to take action, have a backbone, because he fears God. But he also knows how to love on those around him. So I'm not going to add this to those. I'm going to do what I can. And they take it from me. And notice, he had to give up in order to love others. And this is such a simple little Christian principle, but how much are we giving up just to love others? 
How stingy are we right now in our life? So he had reverence for God, compassion for others. The last thing I want you to notice is that he simply prayed. Verse 19. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. All of this work, all of this opposition, all of this effort. And he comes back to God and he says, Lord, remember this. I've tried to serve to your glory. And I wonder in the midst of different positions that we all find ourselves in in life, whether it's in family or or out in the culture or in the workplace or whatever it may be, and also in this church and where this church stands in the community, do we seek to exhibit these things, a reverence for God, a compassion for others, and a strong life of prayer? Because you see, it's not complicated, is it? But oh, isn't it good? Isn't it helpful when it is? Because that means it's We don't have to try to obey as much. It's just too complicated for me to understand. It's really not, is it? It's not complicated to understand how to follow Jesus. We're sinners. He gives us life. Trust in Him, and there's life eternal. See, where's the gospel in Nehemiah? Who Nehemiah is actually points to who Christ is. He demonstrated all these things in his ministry and all the war at the cross when he rose from the dead. So if you want to live like Nehemiah, the best thing for you to do is to follow Jesus, ultimately. And that's a challenge for every single one of us, myself included. And so when we face this internal corruption, whatever context or circumstance it may be, may it be confronted in the fear of God and with the love of God. Of his people. Let's pray. Or there's example after example in your word of people you have set on mission that love you, Lord. May we humble ourselves to take notes from them. And may we see clearly understand how they point to your Son. Father, teach us more for you are. Lord, lead us in giving you glory. And Father, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.